Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 2 as we continue to look at this wonderful letter together. One result of the fact that we are finite beings is that none of us can be an expert in every field of study. With each field comes a whole range of new concepts and even new vocabulary that we're required to understand to be proficient in that field. And if you haven't studied the concepts or the vocabulary of that particular field, you'll find yourself very confused when other people begin to dialogue about that topic. Have you ever had someone begin to talk to you very excitedly about something that seems to be very important to them about their field of study, but the truth is you couldn't relate to their feelings because you had no idea what in the world they were talking about? Anybody ever had that experience? That happens to me frequently when I talk to our, our tech volunteers, who I'm very grateful for, who handle our website. I'll ask a question that seems relatively simple to me, something like, hey, could we add a new picture to our small group page on the website? And they respond to me in such a way that it's clear that they genuinely believe themselves to be speaking the English language. But the words that they are saying to me have no connection to any other words in English that I have ever heard before. And so the result is this unavoidable blank stare on my part that reveals my complete ignorance about the topic at hand. And what's worse, I'm then forced to ask a, an ignorant follow-up question, something like, could you just give me a yes or no on that? Because I'm, I'm not really following what you're saying. Maybe you've had a similar experience in other areas of life, like getting your blood results after an annual checkup or, or go, going over the list of recommendations at the oil change place that the guy always brings out and wants you to do. All of those are experiences that genuinely and generally evoke the same blank stare on my face, followed by some ignorant question afterwards. But the bottom line is, for all of us, we've had experiences in which the subject matter was so far over our head or outside the bounds of our understanding that we failed to accurately interpret the significance of what's being communicated. And the author of Hebrews is overcome with the fervent longing for us to never again underestimate the immense implications of the superiority of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because if you or I under, underestimate the implications of a conversation about a website or your cholesterol or your tire pressure, there may be consequences, but they're usually fairly minor on the grand scheme. But the author of Hebrews knows that the implications of who Jesus is and the message he came to preach are of greater weight and significance than any other thing in life. We simply cannot afford to allow our eyes to glaze over with a blank stare of ignorance when it comes to the Lord Jesus Christ and the gospel. And because of that fact, in chapter 2 of Hebrews, the author is going to take a brief pause on his argument that Christ is superior to the angels to make sure that we are grasping the significance of what he's saying. And so with that in mind, we turn our attention back to chapter 2. Let me just remind you the overarching theme, of course, of this wonderful book is the superiority of Christ. We've seen that Christ is the final revelation of God as the Son of God, therefore he's superior to the prophets. We've also seen that he's superior to the angels, beginning in verse 5 of chapter 1. 
And we saw six proofs of that superiority. We'll just put those on the screen for you. If you missed those messages, you can go back and listen to those. But as we saw last week, these six truths or proofs about Jesus Christ being superior to the angels have led us to one great implication that leads us now to a warning. An implication that comes with a warning. There are five warning passages in the book of Hebrews. This is the first of those warning passages. We've been looking at this larger section in which the theme is that Jesus, as God's divine son, is undeniably superior to the angels. And we're in the middle of that section. But now, as I said, he takes a brief aside to help us understand the implications of this argument in chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. Let's read our text again together this morning. Chapter 2, verse 1. For this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away from it. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was at the first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard, God also testifying with them, both by signs and wonders, and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. Now in these four verses, we've been unpacking one clear message. We must give our utmost attention to the words of the Son. We must give our utmost attention. Pay close attention. If we've been wondering where this argumentation about Christ and the angels is going, it's going right here. We saw the implication last week that the gospel demands greater attention. And we said there that what the author is arguing is that we who have this final or complete revelation in the Son have to pay closer attention to what we've heard than even the Old Testament believers who only have the Old Testament and specifically the Mosaic Covenant. We have the New Covenant in Christ, so how much more responsible are we having the full picture to pay close attention to what has been said? But of course, to understand why that's important, we need an explanation. And that's where our passage takes us this morning. The explanation of the implication. Why is that the implication of what he's been saying? So the gospel demands greater attention, and here's the explanation. The gospel brings greater consequences. The reason that the gospel demands greater attention is because the gospel brings greater consequences. And we're going to see that in verses 2 and 3 this morning. If you look back at verse 2, he begins with the word for. For. And this word modifies the statement, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. It's as if he's saying, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard because of this. It's, it's the why. It's the explanation. And to give us the explanation, he's going to give us a conditional statement. That is an if-then statement. If this is true, then this is also true. And he's going to give us two if statements that lead to one then statement. And the then is going to be the warning that we've been leading up to. But let's begin by looking at this conditional statement and the two if portions of the statement. Look back at verse 2. For 
if the word spoken through angels, we're going to stop there, for if the word spoken through angels. Now, if you've been with us as we've been looking at this section of Christ's superiority over the angels, you know that I've given you several reasons why the angels were held in high esteem by the Jews in this time period. But now, here in our text, the author tells us what's been in his mind this whole time. The primary reason that he has brought up this argument of Jesus being superior to the angels. And here is the primary reason. He's introduced this argument because of the role the angels played in God's giving of the law to Moses on Mount Sinai. Now, it's important to understand that nowhere in the Old Testament does it say explicitly that the Old Testament law, the Mosaic Covenant, was given through the mediation of angels. But in Deuteronomy 33, verse 2, we are told that when God appeared to Moses, he came with a whole host of angels. Look at Deuteronomy 33, beginning in verse 1. It says, Now this is the blessing with which Moses, the man of God, blessed the sons of Israel before his death. So he's remembering what it was like when he received the law. In verse 2, Moses says, The Lord came from Sinai and dawned on them from Seir and shone forth from Mount Paran, and he came from the midst of 10,000 holy ones. That is 10,000 angels. At his right hand, there was flashing lightning for them. Now, from this passage in Deuteronomy 33, the Jews came to understand and teach that the law came from God to Moses through the mediation of angels. And we know that this is what was taught because we see it in the New Testament. Galatians 3.19, as I've shown you before, Paul says, Why the law then? It was added because of transgressions, having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator. So, all that to say, with this statement, the author is telling us why he sees it as so important to prove that Jesus is superior to the angels, and it's because it was through the angels that God gave the law to Moses. Now, the law, of course, that was given to Moses outlined and dictated the way that every Jewish person prior to Christ lived and worshipped. It dominated their lives. Their whole lives were orchestrated according to this word that was given by God through angels to Moses. And so with that in mind, we now see two facts about the law in this if-then statement. Two facts that he's going to use to help us understand the significance of the superiority to Christ. Look back at chapter 2, verse 2. For if the word spoken through angels, here's the first fact, proved unalterable that word given through angels to Moses first of all it proved to be unalterable that word unalterable means valid or binding here's the point of what he's saying the law given through the angels to Moses was a valid covenant it was binding the people were bound to it along with its implications Look at how this Greek word unalterable is used in a couple of other places. It'll show you the, sort of the, the, the meaning in its fullest sense. In Romans 4.16, it 
The word guaranteed here is our word. He says, For this reason it's by faith, in order that it may be in accordance with grace, so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants. Unalterable, guaranteed, binding. Hebrews 9.17, later he'll use the same word, and it's translated there as, For a covenant is valid only when men are dead, for it's never enforced while the one who made it lives. So here we can translate it as valid, as guaranteed, as binding, or unalterable. That's the point. It is binding. Once you're in this covenant, you can't get out of this covenant. In fact, Christ even said that he didn't come to abolish the old covenant, but to fulfill it. He fulfilled the old covenant and then ushered in the new Now, in addition to that, this was a binding covenant because the Israelites themselves agreed to come underneath this covenant with God. We see that in Exodus 24, verse 7. Then he took, that's Moses, took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people, that is, the gathering of the people of Israel, and they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. With that, they're saying, we understand the law that God has given. We want to be his people. We want him to be our God, and we will obey the rules that God has given. So that first covenant was given by God through the mediation of angels to Moses, and entering into that, it was then a binding, valid, unalterable covenant. That's the first fact. He says, if that's true... And then he gives us a second fact that was also true. Here's the fact number two. The law was enforced. It was enforced. Not only was it a binding agreement, it was enforced. Look back at the text, verse 2. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty. This is the second part of the if portion of the conditional statement because the law of Moses was a binding covenant between God and Israel God was faithful to discipline his people in accordance with the law now these two Greek words here are very interesting the word transgression and the word disobedience I want to look at those because it helps us understand how this fits into the scope of his argument the word transgression is is really defined in the way you probably expect it to be defined. The word transgression means an act of deviation from an established boundary or norm. That's probably the, the, basically the definition you would have thought that it meant. It meant that, the, that to transgress the law is to step out of bounds. It's to violate what the law said. We understand that. But the second word is really interesting because it paints a picture, and it's one that we, we don't pick up on in, in English. The word disobedience here, the Greek word, is translated like this. It is a refusal to listen and so be disobedient. A refusal to listen and so be disobedient. So by using this word, the author ties back into the statement he made last week about we must pay much closer attention. We must listen because the people of Israel did not listen They didn't listen to the word, and therefore they disobeyed the word. Understand that the issue with the Israelites disobeying God was not an issue of lacking information. It wasn't a lacking of misunderstanding what the law said. It was clear. It was written on the page. They had it. They agreed to it. The issue was they failed 
to listen. They hardened their hearts to what the law said and therefore chose to disobey. A refusal to listen is a willful choice of rebellion that results in acts of disobedience. Therefore, the opposite is also true. An intentional choice to pay close attention to what God has said comes from a humble heart that genuinely desires to obey. Now, you've probably experienced this scenario if you have children. As a parent, you can often tell when your child is choosing not to listen to your words, and you know at that very moment, you can see on their face that their lack of listening is going to also lead to disobedience. And if not your kids, you've heard of other kids doing such things. And the author's point here is that that the people of Israel did just that. They transgressed the law. They didn't listen, therefore they disobeyed the law. But really his point is not just to highlight the fact that they disobeyed. His point is to highlight the consequence for their disobedience. What was the result? Look back at the text. And every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty. It received a just penalty. Notice how exhaustive this is. Every transgression and disobedience received a penalty. That word just penalty is really the word uh, recompense, which is not a word we use a lot, but recompense is the idea of, if it's used positively, of being paid a wage, of working and being paid for that work. Negatively, it means being paid a wage of a penalty for disobedience. You're being paid out what you earned for disobedience. And so then every act of disobedience against the law of Moses earned a just penalty. And that penalty was just or righteous because, of of course, it was God's standard. It was based upon the nature of God. It was a perfect law. And the people, as we said before, had bound themselves to that law along with its consequences. And therefore, it was just of God to punish them when they disobeyed. Understand that every single punishment or penalty was absolutely just. The law given through the angels to Moses was binding, and every rebellion against it was punished by God. Now, if you've ever read the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Scripture, then you know that the law of God's very detailed, and it gives very specific punishments for really every area of life. It's very exhaustive. But it's important that we appreciate just how severe and devastating the punishments were for hard-heartedly rebelling against God's law and God's instruction. And here's why that's important. Because if we miss the significance of what the author is saying here in the if portion of this statement, then we will also miss the significance of the then that we're building up to. So for just a moment, I want to highlight just how severe the penalty was for hard-heartedly rebelling against the Old Testament law. Now, you may recall that in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses is now an old man. He's come near the end of his life, and he's preparing this new generation. Their parents rebelled, and they died off in the wilderness, so there's this new generation about to enter into the promised land under the direction of Joshua, 
And before Moses dies, he wants to make sure they know the law. So he reiterates the law. Deuteronomy means second law. It's a second giving of the law right before they go into the land so that they go in with fresh knowledge of what they are to do in their covenant between them and God. In Deuteronomy 28, we have this section that is dedicated to blessings and curses. Blessings that will come for obedience and curses that will come for disobedience. This passage is actually one that prosperity preachers go to a lot, but they only read the blessings portion. They never read the cursing portion. And if you go to it, the curses are about three times as long as the blessings. And, of course, this is also under the context of the Mosaic Covenant, which is no longer valid because Christ fulfilled it. I can't read the entire section to you because it's quite extensive. I encourage you to go do that on your own. But I do want to highlight just one section of this the curses that would come from disobedience. This is from Deuteronomy 28, beginning in verse 49. Here is one of the results of hard-hearted rebellion that would come in the future if they disobeyed. Verse 49. The Lord, or Yahweh, will bring a nation against you from afar, from the end of the earth, as the eagle swoops down, a nation whose language you shall not understand, a nation of fierce countenance, who will have no respect for the old, nor show favor to the young. Moreover, it shall eat the offspring of your herd and the produce of your ground until you are destroyed, who also leaves you no grain, no wine or oil, nor the increase of your herd or the young of your flock until they have caused you to perish." It shall besiege you in all your towns until your high and fortified walls in which you trusted come down throughout your land. And it shall besiege you in all your towns throughout your land which the Lord your God has given you. Then you shall eat the offspring of your own body, the flesh of your sons and of your daughters whom the Lord your God has given you during the siege and the distress by which your enemy will oppress you. Now, these words describe in clear language that if the people of God choose to rebel against God's law, he will bring enemies against them and allow them to be overthrown and ultimately driven out of the land. But in verse 52, Moses describes a siege, which would have been a common tactic of war. At this time, if you had a city... People would live some inside the city and some just outside, but you would build a huge protective wall around that city. And if an invading army came, everyone would come inside the wall and close the gates to be protected from invasion. So what invading armies would do is surround that wall and then just wait. They would cut off every supply of food, every supply of water, and just wait until the people either starved or surrendered. And that's what he's describing here. I'm going to let a nation come in, and you're going to be besieged. You're going to be surrounded, and they're going to cut off everything from you. They're going to eat all the produce of the field. You're going to have nothing, and you're going to be starving. But that's not the worst of it. He explains that the starvation of the people will be so bad that it will drive them to unthinkable actions. And he says the starvation will be so bad that you will digress to the point of cannibalizing your own children. Now, perhaps you're thinking, surely that's just hyperbole, right? That's just a hyperbolic statement that God makes to scare the people into obedience. If only that were true. We don't have time to go there, but write down 2 Kings 6, 24 to 33. 
in 2 Kings 6, the northern kingdom of Israel, called Samaria in that passage, has totally rebelled against God. They are false idol worshipers. They're rebelling against God, and exactly this scenario happens. They are allowed to be besieged, and the starvation reaches a level where two women make a compact or a pact together to cannibalize their own children. Now, why in the world have I told you this? Because you and I have to feel the weight of what the author of Hebrews is saying. The original audience, remember, was composed of primarily Jewish Christians. They knew the law, and they knew the history of Israel. They knew these stories. And so when they understand there was a just penalty for every, every act of disobedience, that they knew that. They would have known these stories. But now for us, we're on a level playing ground somewhat because we understand the devastation that would come to the people for disobedience. The point is that the law that came through the angels to Moses was unalterably binding and it was meticulously enforced by God. And the point ultimately is that if that is true about the Old Testament law, then how can we think that we will escape the consequence if we neglect the words that came from the Son? That's the point. That brings us to the then portion of his conditional statement. And this portion is really a sober warning. This is not a happy, fluffy passage, but it is a needed one for us today. And here is the warning. We'll call it warning number one because there will be four to follow throughout the book. Do not neglect the gospel. Do not neglect the gospel. The gospel. Look back at verse 3. How will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Don't miss the continued use of the word we in this verse, just as we saw in verse 1. It again, it highlights this comparison between the revelation given to those in the Old Testament and the revelation given to us now in the new covenant through Christ. And he's driving home the fact that the privilege that we have as those who now have the full revelation of God in Christ comes with great responsibility. And the author chooses here not to focus on the positive aspects of the gospel for those who repent and believe, but instead on the drastic consequences for those who fail to heed the gospel call. The word escape paints a very vivid picture for us. It reminds us that though the gospel is good news, it is the best news, it is only good news for those who repent and believe it and therefore receive its benefit. But for those who follow the pattern of Israel and sinfully refuse to listen to the gospel call through the Son, the consequences are eternally devastating. The way the author phrases this question is a common uh, pattern in Greek, it's a, it's a question that really is a statement. It expects a negative answer. When he says, how shall we escape, he's expecting us to instinctively know the answer is, we won't. We won't. If the law of Moses was binding and enforced, and then, of course, the message of the gospel must be binding and enforced. And those who make the dreadful mistake of sinfully neglecting the gospel 
will not escape the consequence of that neglect. This brings up a common misunderstanding that people have when they compare the Old Testament to the New Testament. It's a common mistake for people to think that the Old Testament demonstrates God's wrath while the New Testament demonstrates God's love and mercy. And that line of thinking misunderstands both the character of God and the Scriptures because the Bible reveals that God is immutable. That is, He cannot change. Not just that He does not change, He cannot change by nature. That means the God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament is the God for all of eternity. We see grand and marvelous displays of the love and grace and mercy of God in the Old Testament, and we see great displays of His justice and wrath over sin. The same is true in the New Testament. The same is true even in the Gospel itself. The Gospel is for sure an amazing outpouring of love and mercy towards those who repent and believe in Christ. But it also highlights the justice and the wrath of God towards sin. In fact, we see this even in the wonderful way the author describes the gospel here in our text. He calls it so great a salvation. So great a salvation. You know, we often use words as believers without stopping to think of the consequence and the significance of those words. For example, when we talk about the time in which we were saved or converted, we call it being saved. I was saved on such and such a day at such and such a time. And that's an accurate term. It's the term that's highlighted here, so great a salvation. But it does necessitate an important question. Saved from what? What do we mean when we say that I was saved? You see, it's because a Christian is the one who's been saved from God's wrath. The penalty, the just penalty for their sin. When we say that we're saved by God, we're also saved from God, from God's outpouring of wrath upon us. Just like the Israelites, we have transgressed the law of God. We have failed to listen to the commands of God. We've chosen our own way. We were dead in transgressions and sin, Ephesians 2 tells us. That sin makes us guilty before God, deserving of his just penalty for sin. And so this salvation in Hebrews 2 is salvation from God's wrath. And he describes it as so great, so great a salvation. Understand, that's very, very strong language in the Greek text. That word so great is used to describe things of unusual and unparalleled magnitude. In fact, listen to one other example of this word. Listen to how the Apostle John uses this Greek word so great to describe the, the most powerful earthquake in human history. In Revelation 16, Verses 17 and 18, describing the coming judgment, he says, Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl upon the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder, and there was a great earthquake, such as there had not been since man came to be upon the earth. So great an earthquake was it, and so mighty. That's the emphasis. So great. It is so great in the sense that it puts it in a category all of its own. There's never been anything like it. Now, when we take that and understand that in the context of our passage, so great a salvation, he means the salvation that comes through Jesus Christ is unique. It's a one-of-a-kind salvation. It's in a category of its own. There's never been a salvation that is like this salvation. You understand that all around us are false gospels, 
presented as legitimate ways of being made right with God. The Mormons offer their version of salvation. The Jehovah's Witnesses offer theirs. Roman Catholics offer their version. And other false religions that claim no connection to Christianity, such as Buddhism, Hinduism, Islam, the list goes on and on. All of these offer their own version of salvation. And though these differ in different aspects, they are all united on one front. All of these false gospels have one thing in common. They're all based on human works of righteousness. All of them. Each of these systems offer to all who will come salvation if you're willing to work for it. But friends, that's not salvation. For example, if I'm stranded at sea, but over the course of time I swim my way to safety, that's not salvation. That's not being rescued. The salvation offered in the gospel, the author of Hebrews says, is great to an exceeding level in such a way that it surpasses every other offer of salvation that mankind has concocted since the beginning of human existence. Why does he say that? What is it about the gospel that Jesus came preaching that sets it apart from every other offer of salvation? Well, to answer that, let me just highlight a few aspects of this salvation. Just ten bullet points this morning. Number one, it's earned by Christ's perfect life. Not yours, his. God's wrath is atoned by Jesus' sacrificial death. Not yours, but his. It's guaranteed by Jesus' victorious resurrection. That is, for all who are in Christ, we can have confidence that we will remain in Christ and that his sacrifice is eternally accepted by the Father because of the resurrection. Fourthly, it's offered to the believer by grace rather than by merit. It's received by faith rather than by works. It results in justification, adoption, sanctification and future glorification it comes with the inheritance of eternal life with God and Christ it results in baptism into Christ's body sealing by the Holy Spirit and gifts of the Spirit given for the edification of the church it comes with a new nature daily filling with the Holy Spirit through the scriptures and a new ability to fight and win the battle with sin and it will culminate in our own physical resurrection with a new, eternal, glorified body in which we will dwell with Christ first in the millennial kingdom and then on the new earth forever and ever. How could a salvation be any greater than this? This puts away every silly notion that man can come up with of some conjunction of grace and works together as if we could ever do anything to save ourselves. The true gospel comes to every false gospel and says you must bow to this gospel because salvation cannot be earned no matter what you do. It must come through the Lord Jesus Christ. This gospel is so great because it's given to us by God in His Son. In fact, this salvation is not only great, it's the only true salvation available. Acts 4.12 puts it this way, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that's been given among men by which we must be saved. 
In the late 1800s, near Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, a group of wealthy businessmen purchased a property to create a place of recreation and retreat. It was known as the South Fork Hunting and Fishing Club. And with that property came a great lake, and they intended to use that lake for fishing and for recreation. And the lake was originally constructed because of a dam that was built in 1852, and it was intended to provide water for all of the local towns around it. But the dam quickly became obsolete because another water system was created, and that lake was no longer needed. Because of that, the dam was grossly neglected and needed repair. The South Fork Hunting and Fishing Club did do some minor repairs, but just enough to get by so they could continue to use the lake for their own recreational purposes. But one fateful day in 1889, that area of Pennsylvania received a -a once-in-a-lifetime thunderstorm that dumped buckets of rain in a downpour that lasted for hours. And it quickly became apparent that the dam was in danger of failing as the water began to swell and to pour over the side of the structure. So men from the hunting club joined into action and and began to clear debris, and they even tried to reroute the water by creating drains and different things, but nothing seemed to work. And it became clear at a certain point that the dam was going to fail. It could not take the weight of the water and debris pushing against it. And at that moment, a man named John Park jumped on his horse, and he raced to the nearest town of South Fork, and began sending telegraph messages to the two towns that were just below the dam in the lower valley, South Fork and Johnstown. And he sent telegraph messages warning them, the dam is going to fail, get to higher ground. The people of South Fork listened to the message and began to flee to the mountains to get to higher elevation. But sadly, the people of Johnstown had heard similar warnings about the dam before, and it had always held. So they chose to ignore the warning. At around 3.10 p.m., the dam broke and released 20 million tons of water racing towards Johnstown. The flood of water washed out much of South Fork, but the vast majority of those people had fled to safety, and so they were okay. But the people of Johnstown sheltered in their homes, and it was utterly devastating. It's estimated that 2,209 people were killed. And that tragic flood is considered the worst disaster in U.S. history up until the events of 9-11. The author of Hebrews wants us to understand this morning that we are like those people living in Johnstown. We have no excuse. We know that we are sinners and we have rebelled against a holy God and that we deserve his eternal punishment for our sin. But we've also received the good news of the gospel. That salvation has come. That it's available to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus comes to us and the wrath of God is is building up over our heads. It looms there and rightfully so. And yet he says, come to me and be saved. Come to me and be rescued from the wrath of God. Not just for forgiveness, but for total, complete payment of your sin. I have paid it. You can't earn it. Stop trying I've earned it. Repent of your sins and place your faith in me and be rescued from the wrath to come. And you will be not only rescued from God's wrath, but adopted into his family, given my righteousness and an inheritance of eternal life. Listen, if you're an unbeliever here this morning, heed the words 
of Hebrews. How will you escape from the wrath of God if you neglect so great a salvation? The answer is, you won't. Just as surely as God brought His judgment upon the people of Israel and and He gave them His judgment because of their neglect and disobedience, so He will pour out His wrath on all who refuse to repent of their sin and place their faith in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. This is a sober warning. And yet it's also an incredible expression of God's grace and love and mercy. It's the Lord Jesus Christ who comes offering to you so great a salvation. God delights in the rescue of sinners from His wrath. In love, He sent His only Son to satisfy His wrath on behalf of all who would come to Him in true faith and repentance. So don't make the dreadful mistake of neglecting the gospel. This salvation is good and it's greater than anything we could ever imagine. And so we must respond. And this morning I would encourage all of us to respond in two primary ways. First of all, take the gospel seriously. Take the gospel seriously. First of all, if you're an unbeliever, perhaps you've heard the gospel many times. But I would ask you, how has it affected you? How has the gospel affected you? The gospel is not to be met with a yawn or a glazed overlook of boredom. Your life and eternity depend upon your repenting and believing in the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you're here this morning and for the first time in your life, you now really understand the gospel and the goodness of God in the Lord Jesus Christ then in your heart, even now, turn to Him in repentance, confessing your sin and your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And He says, you will be saved by the grace and mercy of God. If you're a believer here this morning, then you can never fully neglect the gospel because that would be to deny the gospel, which is impossible ultimately for a true believer. But perhaps this morning you've come to realize that you've not thought about the gospel as deeply as you should. Some Christians, unfortunately, think of the gospel as entry-level Christianity. They want to rush on ahead, past the gospel, on to the deeper things. But mature Christians think on the gospel more, not less. When you come to salvation initially, you have a base-level understanding of what Jesus Christ has done for you in salvation, but your task now is to understand that more and more, unraveling each layer day by day, And that reality becomes greater and greater and more and more precious to you as you see the true depths of what God has done for you in the gospel. If you're a Christian, let me ask you, when's the last time you thought deeply about salvation and the gospel? You see, as Christians, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard from the Lord Jesus Christ. And that means we must not only focus on the components of the gospel, but the implications of of the gospel for our daily lives. And that brings us to a second point this morning. Finally, take the gospel's implications seriously. Take the gospel's implications seriously. As we mature in our understanding of the gospel, we realize that God has not only saved us from something, but to something. God has saved us so that we might now begin to live for His glory and for His kingdom. 
He desires that we are literally transformed more and more day by day into the character of his son. That means the implications of the gospel should impact everything you do in a given day. The gospel should affect your disposition and your outlook on each situation. It should give you a new sensitivity and hatred for sin. It should create in you a new and deepening desire for the word of God and the fellowship of the people of God. And it should create in each of us a burning desire for others to come to know the good news of salvation, that they too can be rescued by the power of God in Christ. Let me ask you, do you view life through a gospel lens? Is the gospel of Jesus Christ the lens through which you see every situation? The more you understand the implications of what God has done for you, it should propel you to think and live every day for the glory of Christ. Obviously, none of us do that perfectly. All of us sin. All of us continue to struggle in that way. But for us as Christians, refusing to neglect the gospel includes an ever-growing understanding of the gospel and a continual commitment to let the gospel have its intended result in us and through us. With that in mind then, Christian, don't neglect the gospel. This week, commit yourself to dwelling on the gospel and the implications of the gospel for your life and then walk by God's grace and the power of the Spirit and greater obedience to these truths. And may it be said of us that we never neglected so great a salvation. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, those of us who are in Christ, we know that this salvation is indeed great. It's greater than all of our sin, greater than all the guilt that we had earned. Jesus Christ paid it all. His life for ours that we might come to you. God, help us to never neglect the gospel. Help, it, help us never to tire of hearing it, of thinking on it, of sharing it. And God, may the implications of what you have done for us propel us then to analyze our lives continually, not legalistically as if we're earning anything from you, but out of love and desire to be more like you, propelled by your grace and mercy. God, help us not to neglect the gospel. And if there be those with us this morning who are not in Christ, Father, we pray you'd open their eyes. Open their eyes to the truth of the gospel in Jesus Christ, that there is true, complete forgiveness, even adoption into your own family for all who would come in genuine faith. Save your people this morning. Glorify your precious name. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.